To put the concepts discussed on this program into a more practical clinical context, I asked physician's assistant, Ms. Desiree Grogan, to present a case from her practice that typifies the challenges of adjuvant therapy of patients with ER-positive and HER2-positive tumors. Ms. Grogan described an older woman in her practice who had a higher-risk breast cancer. This is a 72-year-old Jamaican female who had come to us through her children. She was living in Jamaica at the time of her diagnosis, and her family felt it was important that she come up to the States for definitive treatment. I first met her. She came in with her son and her daughter, and they were very anxious to find out what treatment options may be available to her. And up to this point, all we really knew was that she had a 3-centimeter tumor that had been excised from her breast, She did not have any axillary node dissection or a mastectomy at that time. No chemotherapy had been given or radiotherapy. According to the pathology we received from the hospital in Jamaica, she was shown to be HER2 negative and estrogen receptor positive. We immediately sent her first for an opinion from a surgeon who went ahead and did a breast MRI and found some residual areas of the mass left in the breast. So essentially, the tumor that was removed was kind of an incisional biopsy. They left tumor behind. They just did it to get a diagnosis. Correct. I think she was under the assumption at the time that it had been completely removed. Right. So when she went to the surgeon, obviously, they saw a 1.8 by 1.6 centimeter irregular mass residual in that breast. She was immediately sent then for a mastectomy and sentinel lymph node dissection. The results of the pathology from that actually was very interesting because it did show that this tumor was HER2 positive, and that was done by immunohistochemical assay testing. It was registered as a 3+. Also, estrogen receptor positive. What about the progesterone receptor? Negative. Okay, so in other words, I guess the pathology here, at least in terms of the HER2, conflicted with the pathology from Jamaica. Correct. So, yeah, it's just interesting in terms of the quality control issues mm-hmm. about HER2 testing, and we know that it's a problem. Yes. And here's a good example mm-hmm. where she was labeled as being HER2 negative, and in your lab, she was HER2 positive. Yes. And I don't know what methodology they used in Jamaica. They didn't specify on the pathology report. I guess the feeling is if you have a good lab that, you know, it does high volume, mm-hmm. and they call it three plus on IHC. A lot of people accept that. Others want to see fish. What happens in your practice? Generally, if it's three plus, we'll accept it. If it's two plus, we'll go on to the fish testing. Right. Okay. So did you mention the sentinel node? Uh, It was negative, which was kind of interesting because the tumor ultimately was about four centimeters when it was So it was a pretty big tumor. Yeah. So she's no negative, even, even though she has a pretty big tumor. So she really presents one of the most interesting I guess, situations right now in breast cancer, which is a woman who has a tumor that has the two major sort of targets Mm -hmm. that we have good therapies Mm -hmm. for, estrogen receptor and HER2 now. And those kinds of patient education discussions are getting pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. And she was no negative but high risk. So then the question was, you know, when the data first came out about Herceptin, do we use Herceptin in these patients? But we felt that with the size of her tumor, that it was important to incorporate that into her care. Now, one of the things that happens usually at that initial point when things are kind of getting figured out is to try to get an idea of what the risk of recurrence would be If you don't give anything. Right. Did you have sort of a working feeling for what that number might be? 
the physician I work with uses actually Adjuvant Online. Right, Peter Rabden's a computer yeah. model, right? Um, the physician I worked with was a little hesitant about using the Taxol. Just he wanted was thinking of just giving Adriamycin Cytoxin, perhaps followed by Herceptin. We talked about it at length and kind of felt that in this patient with the size of the tumor, we were a little surprised even still with the sentinel node being negative. I kind of felt that she was at high risk for recurrence. Yeah, I think if you know, I think Peter Ravden's model is very cool because you put in the size of the tumor, mm-hmm. the nodal status, and age, and a few other things, and it gives you the risk of recurrence. Having a four centimeter tumor, clearly she is a higher risk mm-hmm. node negative patient. There's some debate about what the bar is for that. Mm-hmm. Some people say one centimeter or two centimeter, maybe depends on the hormone status, et cetera. But nobody would argue that this right. woman has a risk that's maybe similar to a woman with a smaller tumor who, say, had one positive, no positive nose. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So you were very concerned about her risk. Also, she's 72 years old. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, it gets a little bit interesting. What kind of condition was she in? She is a healthy 72-year-old, good performance status. Comorbid conditions were hypertension which did prove to be an issue during her treatments right. with growth factor treatments. What was her lifestyle? Was she working, retired? She was retired down in Jamaica, very active lifestyle, a little resistant to be up here in New York, especially with the winter approaching. But her kids were adamant that she stayed for treatments. When we first spoke to her, we kind of laid out for her that her treatment would consist of a year-long treatment. One of the things that is, I think, important in this initial assessment in terms of adjuvant therapy is the patient attitude. Mm -hmm. Some people are totally oriented around, what can I do to reduce my risk Mm -hmm. of recurrence? And others are more like, what kind of side effects am I going to have? I don't Mm -hmm. want to get sick, et cetera, et cetera. Where did this woman fit in? She kind of fell in in between, I would say. She, like I said, she was resistant to be up in New York. She would prefer to be down in Jamaica, but she came to the understanding that she was here. She was going to do what she needed to do to get through it. Side effect wise, I sometimes find that older patients don't ask as many questions about the side effect profile as younger patients do. As we started going through the treatments, she became more concerned. She was lethargic. She had difficulty with asthenia and anemia. But um, she was not concerned about things like hair loss, nausea, vomiting, didn't concern her so much. But, you know, we start off our conversation explaining that we have a lot of supportive care available to sort of counteract the more common side effects of chemotherapy. What was this woman's sort of emotional state when you first met her? What was her reaction being told she had breast cancer? Since she had already been aware of her diagnosis coming up to New York, She wasn't so much surprised by the diagnosis, but more surprised by the treatment that we had proposed, the length of the treatments. And I think we're going to see that with a lot of patients now using Herceptin and making adjuvant breast cancer treatment a year long rather than six months or four months long. So she was sort of surprised by that. You know, I'm going to be here in New York away from my home for a full year is what you're telling me. And once we started to explain the data and why we felt it was important to include Herceptin in her treatment, she was more amenable to it. A lot of patients, when they're first diagnosed, and again, as you say, it's maybe been a little while since she had been first diagnosed, are very, very frightened of Mm -hmm. of dying Mm -hmm. of cancer. It seems a common theme, no matter what the stage the cancer is, it's the first thing people think about. Was that the case with her? Not so much. Not as much as with a younger person, I would say. I think it's important whenever someone is diagnosed with breast cancer to really put it into perspective for them and sit down with them and explain to them how far we've come in treatment. And we have new options available every day, it seems, sometimes, that continue to reduce their risk of recurrence and 
the importance of following through on treatments that we recommend and, you know, vigilant surveillance. How interested was this woman in the sort of numbers and statistics? It can get pretty complicated when you start to look at what the risk for recurrence is and mm-hmm. how different therapies affect those risks. Was she the kind of person who wanted to know about all those numbers or just like tell me what I should do? Just tell me what I should do. Yeah. Her family was more interested in the numbers. Right? Yeah. So you discuss some of that we, with yeah. the family? We kind of sit down in a roundtable forum you know, with her son and her daughter and herself. And you can almost see the patient blank out when you discuss numbers, you know. I find the older population is still kind of, I'll do whatever my doctor tells me to do. Whereas when you speak to a younger patient, they're very savvy. They've already been on the internet. They already know the numbers. They want to see how you're breaking it down for them. But in this situation, her family was very interested in what the numbers were. Right. So let's sort of sort through, Mm -hmm. you know, what basically can be done to reduce this woman's Mm -hmm chance of relapse. And again, in this situation, she really has three major modalities, mm-hmm. chemotherapy, endocrine therapy because she's ER positive, mm-hmm. and trastuzumab because she's HER2 positive. Well, we'll save that one for last since that's the newest. Let's start out first with the um, hormone therapy. Okay. What hormone therapy did you present to her and sort of what was your thinking there? We presented to her Arimidex or Anastrozole, one of the aromatase inhibitors, you know, based on the recent data that really shows that the AIs appear to be superior to tamoxifen in the adjuvant setting. There's one thing that's kind of interesting about this case, that her tumor was ER positive, PR negative. Yes. And there actually been a report that came out of the attack trial that sort of got Anastrozole on the map as an adjuvant therapy, mm-hmm. that the patients who were... ER positive, but PR negative mm-hmm. seem to derive even more benefit from the, from the anastrozole. Yes. And they had this speculation that, although they didn't really know, that those were going to be people who were also HER2 positive. Mm-hmm. And again, this woman is HER2 positive. So she kind of fits that model, yes. what they presented. And we did take that into consideration, the estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor negative, because we've kind of gone back and forth in our practice. You know, does a patient need tamoxifen? Do they need to be primed with tamoxifen? Because the data switching from tamoxifen to an AI is very compelling. And I think the numbers seem to be even greater than using an AI up front. But patient estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor negative, we have been starting with the AIs. What have you observed in terms of just side effects to AIs like anastrozole compared to tamoxifen in postmenopausal women? Um, muscle pains, joint pains, myalgias, arthralgias, absolutely number one across the board. I can't say that I've seen it more with anastrozole than with letrozole or exemestine. I have tried in patients who seem to be very bothered by them. Usually I recommend an anti-inflammatory if they're a candidate for that or just plain Tylenol. For the most part, I would say 90% of patients just deal with them. They have aches and pains to begin with. It just becomes part of their everyday life. But for those patients who it really becomes a problem, I have tried switching them to a different AI to see if it would make an improvement, perhaps from a non-steroidal to a steroidal. In some cases it does, in some cases it doesn't. I try not to just because I really don't feel like there's a difference. It's interesting. Your experience really is very much like what the data is Mm -hmm. out there. That number of 10% of people who have problems that make you think about switching or changing or whatever, that's out there. And I think the trials themselves, the excess number of patients with arthralgias or musculoskeletal problems was somewhere around 7%. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like your experience, I guess, is that it's a common problem, but Mm -hmm. not commonly a reason to have to To switch or stop, right? Right. What about 
vasomotor symptoms comparing tamoxifen to the AIs? I saw more hot flashes with tamoxifen than I do with the AIs. I present it as one of the more common symptoms to the patients, let them know that this is a, a possibility. When we were treating patients with tamoxifen, there was a handful of patients that hot flashes became an issue that I would often treat with SSRIs like Effexor. I haven't had that come up at all with the AIs. And again, you know, the research shows less hot flashes mm-hmm. with the AIs. Then, you know, it's like musculoskeletal problems. Both groups have a lot of them, but just, again, a lot or significantly fewer with the AIs. Any other differences in terms of symptoms or side effects between the two? What about gynecologic symptoms? Any differences that you've noticed? Not so much. With tamoxifen, I probably got more complaints regarding vaginal discharge or vaginal dryness. Arimidex or letrozole, I don't really hear too many complaints about that. The main difference that I present to patients, if we do talk about tamoxifen as an option versus the AIs, is the risk of osteoporosis. I present it to them, and you know, I say that we're going to kind of follow them closely, and we start off, we do a bone density at baseline, and then annually after that, I'm a little bit more aggressive using bisphosphonates in these patients if they show even just some osteopenia. We'll often start them on Actinel or Fosamax. And, of course, in the major AI trials, they Mm -hmm. didn't do that. They just kind of, because they weren't sure what to expect. So it's interesting. Certainly, there are increased numbers of fractures that we're seeing in these Mm -hmm. trials. But, again, that's without that kind of aggressive Mm -hmm. intervention and monitoring you just described. If a patient who's about to get an AI, start an AI, and I guess we should also emphasize AIs are only for postmenopausal patients. Mm-hmm. So if a woman says to you, what's the chance I'm going to have a fracture, mm-hmm. excess chance of me having a fracture by taking an AI, given what you're going to do in terms of the monitoring of the bisphosphonates? I usually say that it's a small risk. With the bisphosphonates, it's hard to even assess what her risk is, right. you know. I tell her a little bit about the data from the studies and say that her risk of really developing a fracture is low, probably less than 2%. And, you know, try and weigh the benefits and the risks for her and say, the benefit that you're achieving by being on an AI and your risk reduction, your risk of recurrence is lower compared to your risk of developing, you know, bone density loss. You know, when you weigh the benefits and the risks, in my opinion, I would you prefer to have a greater protection from the breast cancer right. re- recurrence. And that we've been doing a lot of patterns of care studies of mm-hmm. oncology practices in the United States, and clearly what you just said reflects what's going mm-hmm. on in at least 80% mm-hmm. right now in this country. And it was the same thing with tamoxifen. When I would present side effects of tamoxifen and talk about endometrial cancer, right. you know, when people hear that another cancer is a potential yeah. side effect of right. treatment, it was important for me to show them really the small percentage. It was, uh, you know, less than one in 1,000 women developed endometrial cancer as a result. And I said, even if you should develop endometrial cancer, much more treatable than if you were to develop, you know, metastatic breast cancer. Right. I guess the other thing about AIs versus tamoxifen in terms of now moving from side effects to complications, you mentioned the endometrial cancer, mm-hmm. which does scare people, no doubt about it. Actually, I think the attack trial just showed that women who got tamoxifen had five times the number of hysterectomies. And mm-hmm. most of that was for benign stuff mm-hmm. just because people were just worried about yeah. it. Do you see a lot of gynecologic you know, referrals and ultrasounds and biopsies in women on tamoxifen? Yes, absolutely. A lot of apparently needless biopsies, but it's hard to say. I don't know that there are any clear-cut guidelines do you do annual transvaginal sonograms to look at the endometrial lining? Are you asking for trouble? If the patient's not having vaginal bleeding, you know, do you look? 
Right. And if you look, then at what point do you biopsy? And most gynecologists tend to be a little bit more aggressive in doing biopsies and DNCs and, you know. The other, I think, thing that people talk a lot about as being important in terms of, you know, risks relates to deep vein thrombosis and stroke, mm-hmm. which clearly seems to be somewhat increased with tamoxifen and certainly more with tamoxifen than with the AIs. And that, you can't do a bone density or anything. I mean, you can't right. predict mm-hmm. that. It's, right. you know, and you don't know who's going to get it. And even though it is uncommon, it's certainly something you don't want to see happen as a result of treatment. I see that, particularly in the older patients, people talking a lot about. Is that your experience? Yes. I mean, as soon as you present that as a side effect, they kind of you know freak out a little bit. And you try to explain to them. I, I educate them on what the symptoms of a thromboembolic event would be, whether it be a stroke or a blood clot in the leg or a pulmonary embolism. So that they would be aware at first sign, especially if they were to develop a DVT in their leg, that they can come to us sooner rather than later to sort of step in and provide treatment. So using this 72-year-old woman as kind of an example, mm-hmm. if you looked at her you know, sort of baseline before you started the anastrozole, mm-hmm. was she having vasomotor symptoms or hot flashes? No, nothing like that. And musculoskeletal problems? No, nothing of any that she mentioned to me. Okay. No major arthritic history. Did you discuss the issue of tamoxifen versus uh, AI in her, or you just said, hey, I think you should take Not with this patient. I, we presented just the Arimidex to her as the option. We really felt like that was the better option for her. Perhaps if it was a patient, as we spoke of earlier, who is estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, perhaps we would have presented both sides of the coin to her. Although, you know, it's interesting, just at the recent San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in December 2005, they had a report from another major AI study. This one looked at letrozole, mm-hmm. and they didn't see that ER positive, PR yeah. negative thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe it's not real. Or, you know, a lot of people say, too, that even if the effect, anti-tumor effect of the two were the same, that the side effects mm-hmm. and toxicity advantage might favor the AI anyhow. Mm-hmm. Is that your take? I do feel that way. You know, if it were myself and I had to choose which one, I would choose an AI over tamoxifen based on the side effect profile. So that was the endocrine therapy that you were going to recommend to mm-hmm. this woman. When you sat down with her, what did you tell her about the anastrozole? When we first began to talk, we talked about where we would be targeting, you know, chemotherapy versus endocrine versus an immunotherapy. When we completed the chemotherapy portion, we sat down and said, okay, now we're heading into our next target. And I sort of explained to her about the role that estrogen plays in the development of her tumor and the growth of her tumor. Was she interested in that? She was. I often presented to them as it's a fuel. Hmm. You know, this is the word I use for even when I talk about prostate cancer and testosterone. I say estrogen is the fuel that made your breast cancer grow. And we need to block estrogen from getting to perhaps any residual cells that could be left behind. I stress that we've done everything we could to treat everything and we're continuing to do that. But there's always a chance that there are some cells that are left behind that could become active. I explained to them that I want to block the fuel to give these cells, you know, the opportunity to grow. And that usually, they can kind of visualize what that means. You know, patients often like to think in their head, you know, what's going on in my body. So they can sort of visualize the estrogen fueling their cancer. I give them a basic explanation of how AIs work and 
or tamoxifen or whatever drug we may be administering so they can understand how we're blocking the fuel. I also like to explain to postmenopausal women that they still have levels of estrogen. I think oftentimes postmenopausal women are under the impression that they don't have any estrogen. They're not menstruating. Their ovaries aren't functioning the same as when they were younger. So I give them a basic explanation that they do have estrogen levels and where it comes from and how the AIs help to block that from getting to any potential tumor cells. Did you bring up any things to look out for, any side effects, complications? Yeah, I explain the most common side effects first with the AIs. I talk about the myalgias and arthralgias and what we can do to combat them and at what point she really needs to come to me to discuss them if it's becoming a problem. You know, I explained to her that it's a five-year treatment, at least at this time, you know. Also explain that it's an evolving study and we're learning more and more how long to continue hormonal therapy for, but at this time, we're looking at five years of treatment. Explain to her that hot flashes are a common side effect associated with it, and then we go on to talk about the effect on the bone density and how I'd like to start with a baseline bone density and follow her annually. And after you sort of went through that whole thing, you know, sort of how did she feel about it, taking the anastrozole? She was open to the anastrozole because it was a pill. And, you know, once you explain that, as you know, the chemotherapy side effects are going to wear off. And, you know, at this point, she's still feeling kind of crummy from the chemotherapy. So once you explain that those side effects are going to wear off, she's going to start feeling like herself. And really, the anastrozole is just going to become part of one of her other pills that she's taking on a daily basis. And that it has great benefit in preventing this from ever coming back. Were there any financial considerations here in terms of the cost between the anastrozole compared to tamoxifen? This patient had insurance coverage, so it wasn't a consideration. She paid a nominal co-payment, but it has come up in the past. In fact, it often comes up now if we have a patient on tamoxifen, say two to three years, and we're choosing to switch it to an AI based on the more recent data. And what I'll find is that they will, you know, go to the pharmacy to fill their prescription for an AI, and they may or may not have the same coverage that they did for tamoxifen. And they start, they verbalize more or less the differences in the price. Let's talk about chemotherapy and trastuzumab. Okay. This woman then fell into the category of a higher risk type patient. Mm -hmm. Another consideration is the fact that she's 72. Mm -hmm. She's not 92, but Mm -hmm. she's also not 62. So Mm -hmm. she's 72 a little bit up there in years. Prior to the trastuzumab adjuvant data coming mm-hmm. out, you know, in early 2005, in general, how were you all approaching the issue of chemotherapy in the higher risk patient like that? We were using predominantly dose-dense therapy in these patients. So AC paclitaxel? Correct. Mm-hmm. In a dose-dense fashion. Honestly, we did it for a short period of time. The area where we practice is actually the same area where the principal investigator of the dose-dense data came from, Dr. Mark Citron. So it kind of caught on like wildfire in our area initially. Interesting, because, well, also just in general, and I guess the theory behind dose-dense chemotherapy came out of Memorial Sloan Kettering in Mm -hmm. New York near you with Larry Norton Mm -hmm. sort of being the champion. And then Mark Citron, Mm -hmm. who's kind of out more in private practice, but also he's the one who actually, I guess, did the study. Yeah, we found, too, that all over the Northeast in general, but particularly around New York, lots and lots Mm -hmm. of 
dose-dense chemo being given. So you were doing that ever since the dose-dense data there came out came a few out. years ago. Yeah, and I think that we found the mechanism of dose-dense chemotherapy seemed to make sense. You know, a constant exposure to chemotherapy you know, increases your cell kill. It made sense intellectually. You know, unfortunately, the follow-up data has not been as convincing as the earlier data seemed to be. So we've started to come away from that. You know, additionally, I found that with the dose-dense, I know the studies show that there wasn't an increase in toxicity. In my personal experience, I did find that patients experienced a great deal more fatigue and asthenia and found it difficult to recuperate between cycles. They never really had that extra week off to kind of get their energy back up. So That's interesting that you would say that because, you know, that really is very intuitive. And yet I've heard over and over from people saying, quote, isn't it surprising that these people aren't becoming fatigued when they're getting chemotherapy in a third less time? And I was like, well, okay, I guess that's interesting. But actually what you're saying makes sense. My opinion on that, and this is nothing against physicians, is that patients don't tell physicians everything they're feeling. They tend to talk a lot more to their nurses As a physician assistant, I spend a lot of time with patient education and talking to them before their treatments. We focus a lot on quality of life issues when we sit down and talk before each treatment. And I think patients expect to feel fatigued from chemotherapy. And a patient who's never gone through chemotherapy, when they were on a dose dense, this is what they were expected to feel. It's only in my experience to compare what patients would tell me when they were on a every three week schedule versus an every two week schedule that I can say that I really felt that they had a great deal more fatigue. Interesting. Okay, so you were using generally when you had node positive or like this woman high risk mm-hmm. node negative, dose dense AC paclitaxel mm-hmm. every two weeks with. With new last time, yes. With guessing. new last okay. yes. Mm-hmm. And then the trastuzumab studies came mm-hmm. out first as a press release in April '05, and then the next month in May presented. At that point, which is around the time this woman was coming mm-hmm. through, we had data for using AC and ataxane, really mm-hmm. paclitaxel, mm-hmm. where the trastuzumab was started during the taxane. Mm-hmm. How did you sort of process that, and what did you decide to do? Well, we had data from three different trials to sort of incorporate. And in our experience with this patient being 72, I wasn't real comfortable with giving her dose dense. Additionally, we didn't have data with her septin in the dose dense fashion from these studies. So we went with the more traditional Q3 week dosing. And we also gave her her septin Q3 weeks and concurrently with her taxol every three weeks. So she got AC. AC. Mm -hmm. And after four cycles of AC, she then got... Paclitaxel and trastuzumab. Correct. And how often were you giving the trastuzumab? Every three weeks. And I'm guessing you did an ejection fraction of her mm-hmm. heart was okay? Yeah, we did an ejection fraction at baseline before adriamycin, and it was 63%. We did an ejection fraction after adriamycin, but before trastuzumab, and it was 60%. So, yeah, because I guess one of the things that's really been important, particularly in people over 50, are people who drop between those two mm-hmm. points, and mm-hmm. she really didn't have much of a drop. When you kind of sat down with her at that point to present the option of Mm -hmm. this sort of chemotherapy trastuzumab, and then again, I guess you're going to continue the trastuzumab for a year, year. just Mm -hmm. the way the trials did Mm -hmm. up to that point. What did you say to her about sort of the benefits or risk of what you were proposing? Mm -hmm. I told her that, you know, new data had recently been published that showed that the addition of trastuzumab to her chemotherapy 
could reduce her risk of the cancer coming back by a significant amount. And I don't know if at the time I gave her actual numbers, but I probably said around 30% and reduce her risk of it coming back. And I explained to her that it would add six months more on top of her chemotherapy, and that would mean that she would have to stay here in the States for that additional time, but that if she can sort of deal with it and stay here, that when she returned to Jamaica, we'd hope that she'd be able to return down there with a clearer mind, knowing that she had received the optimal treatment while she was up here. What did you say to her in terms of possible side effects and toxicities of the various therapies? Let's start Mm -hmm. out with the AC. Okay. When we first started AC, we talked about the number of side effects associated with it. First thing we talked about is the risk of neutropenia or a low white blood cell count and talked about the use of growth factors, specifically new LASTA, to help combat that. Whenever I start patients on adjuvant breast therapy, I make it very clear to them that we want to try to keep them on time and receiving their appropriate doses that there is data to support that if patients aren't receiving the most doses, that they may not be receiving the full efficacy. That's really important in the adjuvant setting Mm because you're you're trying to really improve the cure Cure rate, rate. Mm -hmm. whereas if a patient has gross metastatic disease, hopefully you'll extend their life, but you're not going to cure them. Correct. So really when I'm dealing with these patients in adjuvant, and this is what I say to them, if we're going through all of this treatment and I'm subjecting you to these side effects that I'm about to tell you about, let's maximize the benefit that we can achieve from it. So it's important that the patient communicate with me side effects that they may be having so that I can do what I can to help them or to alleviate them or limit them or explain to them that these are things that we just have to deal with. So we talked about first about myelotoxicity, neutropenia, anemia, and thrombocytopenia as side effects to chemotherapy and began by talking about Nulasta support as well as Procrate or Aranesp to help combat any anemia problems that we may have. So were you planning on using the Nulasta preventively? Yes. We're very proactive at our office. We do a lot of primary prophylaxis with Nulasta. Really feel that your risk of febrile neutropenia is highest in your first cycle. Would you do that? Was this prompted by the fact she was 72 or if she was 52, you would have done the same thing? We would have done the same thing at 52. And there is significant data to show that, you know, neutropenia is your number one dose limiting toxicity. So if we can treat that, virtually prevent it really with growth factor support, then we can eliminate the number one reason why we might dose reduce or dose delay a patient. And I guess... I mean, what you're talking about, I guess the major downside would be the cost. Mm -hmm. And probably your approach in your office sounds more aggressive or proactive, I would say, than probably the average oncology Mm -hmm. practice in the United States. Mm -hmm. Not that it's wrong or right, but I think that just sort of balance, we should point out that a lot, most people probably don't do Mm -hmm. what you're talking about. I think primarily, I would guess, because of the financial concerns. Mm -hmm. What do you see in terms of side effects from Nulasta? Mild bone pain and arthralgias. I don't really hear too many complaints about it. I hear more about it, although it's hard to tell when they're getting their taxol part of their chemotherapy, but it's hard to discern whether it's taxol-related or Nulasta-related. I'm sure you also talked to this woman about hair loss and about potential effects of the doxorubicin on the heart. Yes. What did you say to her and how did she react to that? Oh, we explained that one of the chemotherapies that she would be getting can affect her heart and we explained exactly how it could affect her heart. We didn't want her thinking that she was going to walk out the door and have a heart attack, but explained that it can affect the contractility of the heart or how hard the heart is pumping or the strength with it's pumping. And explained to her that there are studies that show that there is a dose limit or a lifetime dose, maximum dose that a patient can get, and that she would not be getting anywhere near 
that dose, but we were going to be monitoring her both at baseline and then at follow-up, and then briefly mention that further treatments, specifically the Herceptin, could also affect her cardiac contractility. So explain to her that we were going to be following it closely, talk to her about if she were to experience any specific symptoms, such as shortness of breath or you know dyspnea with exertion, that she should discuss these with us, that they could be early signs of cardiac problems. What happened with the AC? The AC she tolerated very well with the exception of some anemia. Any nausea and vomiting? No. We pre-treat them pretty heavily with anti-emetics. We give patients AC, I very conscientious of, we give emend up front to all our patients getting adriamycin. Additionally, we usually give a 5-HT3 antagonist intravenously with steroids as well. Right. What happened in terms of this woman's hair? She did lose her hair. Did she cut it out? Cut she it off did the way cut you... it off. Yes, uh-huh. she did cut it off. She had cut it real short, and then she had her son shave it off when she really started to see it falling out. How did that affect her? As with all patients, I, you know, I try and talk to them when they come in for their second treatment. By that point, they've usually lost all of their hair. So I usually try and stop in and say to them before they go in for their next chemo, how did you do with this? You know, And they'll often tell me, and I believe that she did as well, that they cried. You know, that they had a period of a few days where they really just sobbed about it. And now it's past them, and it's, you know, this is what they have to deal with, and it'll come back. And, in fact, this woman didn't even opt to wear a wig. Hmm. You know, she would either come in with a scarf or, you know, she would sometimes come in the summertime completely bald. So I often uh, give women a lot of credit for that. What happened to her, her overall functional level during the AC? She was able to uh, do her everyday activities. As I said, we only really hit a difficult spot when she developed an anemia. Now, she came into treatment with a mild anemia. I think her hemoglobin was about 11 when we started, and it dipped right towards the end of the AC portion of her chemo. We had to get her a blood transfusion. We were treating her with Procrit throughout the course of the treatment, but were somewhat limited due to some hypertensive issues. So once we got her blood transfusion, you know, we started the taxol portion of her chemotherapy with the hemoglobin of 11 and a half, and she was good to go. Can you talk more about the hypertensive issues that relate to that? Sure. Uh, the patient has a history of hypertension. She's on a number of antihypertensives. We would administer the Procrit, but found that in the weeks after her first dose of her Procrit, her blood pressure was had increased from baseline, uh, really would see numbers around 160 over 100. And we generally don't administer erythropoietins if their diastolic is over 90. So then she came up to the taxol slash trastuzumab mm-hmm. portion. Mm-hmm. What did you tell her to expect in terms of those two things? When I talked about the taxol, I really focused on the myalgias and arthralgias. And I try to explain to patients when they're going to begin and how long they're going to last and what we could do to treat them. I find that... What do you say specifically? Specifically, what I say is that the day of your chemotherapy, you'll feel okay. The next day, I find that patients feel good the day after their chemo, and that, I believe, is a result of the steroids they're getting. So they come in the next day, perhaps for their new Lasta. I call them, see how they're doing. They're like, I feel great. I feel terrific. Nothing's going to happen. So I really tell them that they're going to feel great for a day or two, and then about three days after their chemotherapy or two to three days after their chemotherapy, they're going to start to feel like they got the flu. And that's the way I describe it. Joints are going to hurt. Muscles are going to hurt. They're really going to feel like their body is heavy. We will tell them to often start with just Tylenol because for some patients that works. Otherwise, if it's not, I have them call me. We'll give them something like Ultram or Darvacet depending on the severity of the pain. I tell them to expect it to last for about three days. After three days, they really should start to see an improvement. It may not be completely gone. 
I give the same speech to everybody, and inevitably, I get a call from someone, my knees are killing me, my hips are killing me, and I just reiterate to them that it is a side effect to the chemotherapy and that it is normal and it will subside. What else do you tell them about the Taxol? I say that if they should start to develop any sort of tingling in their fingers or in their toes or even an itchy sensation, some patients describe neuropathy as a feeling of coldness in their hands or their feet, that I want them to tell me about it up front. And as they tell me, if they mention this to me, I sort of try to assess the grade of it. If it's a grade one neuropathy, we try not to, again, dose reduce or dose delay or do anything. If we see it developing more rapidly, because it really does depend on the patient. Some patients can go through four cycles of Taxol and not ever experience neuropathy. This patient in particular noted after the first treatment a mild neuropathy in her fingers. Numbness? Numbness or tingling. I don't want to say tingling in there. Tingling. And did she get through the taxol? She completed the taxol, full doses, no dose delays or dose reductions. And what was and sort of the maximal neuropathy that she had? She really finished with a grade one neuropathy. Just some tingling? Some tingling. And, and But she still asks about it. I think neuropathy is another underplayed side effect. So you, when you say she still has it, she still she, has she, it? She still has it. I guess she completed chemotherapy in... The end of November. So I see her every three weeks for her Herceptin now, and I saw her just yesterday. And she still has a grade one neuropathy. And she asks me, you know, when is it going to get better? And I try to tell them that, in general, the neuropathy will improve and should get better, but it's a slow process. There is a small percentage of patients that have residual neuropathy. I want to ask you what you said to her about the trastuzumab. What did you say to expect in terms of side effects or risks? Well, we talked, again, about the cardiac toxicity. I reiterated what I had told her at the beginning of her treatment. Again, at the beginning of the trastuzumab therapy, we did get another ejection fraction, sort of to know where we started at that point. We talked about initial infusion-related reactions. We talked about the duration of the initial treatment. With trastuzumab, we start off with a 90-minute infusion and progressively cut it down to a 30-minute infusion. I talked to her about how we were going to pre-medicate her with Benadryl and Tylenol to sort of prevent any infusion reactions such as fevers or chills during her first infusion. And what happened? She had no reaction. In my experience, I have not seen a lot of infusion-related reactions with trastuzumab, so it's not a major concern with me. And then once she stopped the Taxol, she just sort of cruised along with the trastuzumab? Yeah, I mean, she's only been on the trastuzumab alone portion of her treatment about two months. So I see her every three weeks. You know, like I said, I saw her just yesterday. You know, she's doing well. Her only question to me when she was leaving was about the neuropathy and also how many more months do I have left? She's living with her family now? She lives with her son up and, here in the And States. she's anxious to go home. She's anxious, yeah. And in fact, she tries to go home now between her, her septum treatments to just check on things. What's her state of mind like now compared to when you first met her? I think there's a relief, you know, in her mind. I think she's glad to be done with the chemotherapy portion. I think she's a little frustrated that she still has really four months of treatment left here with us, even though she feels well. Now that she's on the Herceptin alone, other than the residual neuropathy, she doesn't have any side effects. And I do try and point that out to patients. You know, once you're done with the chemo part of this, and we're just continuing with the Herceptin as monotherapy, you're really going to be cruising along. You know, you'll come in, you'll say hello for a half hour, you'll go home and you'll do your business. And she is certainly seems to be falling into that. What do you see in terms of how long it takes on average I guess I'm sure it depends on what type of treatment patients receive for patients who've received adjuvant chemo to sort of get back to normal. Maybe six weeks to three months. 
I really find after four to six weeks that all of the acute toxicities have left their body. The real thing that hangs around is the fatigue. I was really thinking more about the fatigue. Yeah. In terms of when do you see people's energy level go back to where it was before chemo? It's hard to assess. It's a hard thing to get that information from a patient. They feel so much better than they were on chemotherapy that in their eyes and what they're relating to me is that they're back to normal. Whether or not that's truly the case is hard to say. Occasionally you'll have a patient who says they have some residual fatigue, you know, months after the therapy, but I'm not, the honest answer is I'm not sure we ask about it. You know, a year after chemo, two years after chemo, do we ask patients, I don't think I do, you know, how is your energy level compared to before your treatment? This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Nia Love for Breast Cancer Update.